Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. My guest today is Louise Simbendamwe. She's co-director of Supporting Employment and Economic Development Winnipeg, also known as SEED Winnipeg. And Louise and her staff have been supporting individuals and families navigating our financial and social systems to help them reach economic empowerment. I sat down with Louise Simbendamwe, co-director of SEED Winnipeg Inc. to talk about economic development and empowerment in a post-COVID world, the difficulties dealing with and navigating systemic barriers, and how to improve the lives of the most vulnerable among us. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via Zoom by Louise Simbendamwe. She is the co-director of Seed Winnipeg, Inc., and a community human rights advocate here in Winnipeg. Louise, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Nolan. So for our listeners who haven't heard of Seed, maybe just give me the breakdown of who you are, what you do, and give me the 30-second elevator pitch for Seed. Sure. So Seed stands for Supporting Employment and Economic Development, and we're dedicated to increasing opportunities for people who are living on low levels of income by offering a range of uh, financial empowerment programs and addressing some of the barriers that they face on a systemic level. We talked uh, a couple weeks ago. Thank you again for doing the interview for the Vital Signs Report. That's going to be coming out from the foundation in a couple months. And I learned a lot. I, I want to kind of re-explore some of the things we talked about there. But maybe uh, the the context I think right now that's important is that in a post-COVID sort of world, um, the barriers have heightened and the gap has widened and the financial empowerment is more important than ever. So maybe just tell me um, what you are seeing through your clients at, at Seed and who, who the people you are serving and what is this post-COVID world looking like? And even during COVID, because I know that there was a lot of barriers that uh, continued to arise and, and get worse for people during the pandemic. So maybe just within the context of financial empowerment, how did COVID affect things uh, for who you were serving? Yeah, I think initially, I think many of us had the same approach in terms of thinking that we're all in this together. And this is a pandemic that's impacting everybody, uh, but very quickly. Um, it became clear that some people were more impacted than others. And um, particularly the people that Seed works with that are living on low levels of income have um, quite a lot of systemic and structural barriers to economic and social inclusion. Uh, they also had less capacity and less resources to deal with the adverse impacts of the pandemic. Mm. Um, yeah, and so it was really quite heartbreaking to see just how um, difficult it was navigating the situation for, for many of the people that we work with. And uh, particularly in a context where a lot of community organizations, because of concern about safety, because of the public health orders, were closing their doors, mm -hmm. um, the lack of access to services, was really profound. Um, a lot of organizations, including SEED, shifted our services more online and virtually and through the phone. Uh, but we recognized that a lot of people don't have consistent access to the technology that uh, that would be required to access mm -hmm. services that way. So we 
we're lucky uh, in that we were identified as an essential service. And so we were able to keep our doors open and people were able to get in-person services. Uh, so appreciative to the staff who were prepared and willing uh, and, and eager to do that. Uh, but we literally had participants uh, come in through the doors and and cry because uh, this was one of the few places that they could go to and get support. Uh, every other place was closed to them. Uh, and so that same pattern continued on in the phase that we're in as we've moved to, uh, as we're hopefully emerging uh, out of the pandemic, hopefully eventually um, there has been recovery in many sectors of the economy. Um, and many people are feeling, yeah, my life is returning back to normal. Uh, but again, that recovery has been very uneven. And so mm -hmm. people ha have fallen uh, further behind. A lot of people have fallen through their tracks. I think for any Winnipegger, when we go out onto the street, we actually visibly see that with the encampments um, that are just proliferating and are in areas that we have never seen them before. Um, and so I think that tells us that uh, there are huge swaths of the population that are in a really desperate situation. And so there is a real need for um, supports that will help um, uh, support people in terms of getting them on their feet, access the government benefits and entitlements that they should be getting yeah. <laughs> uh, through the tax system or more directly, access health care, um, be able to open bank accounts. Uh, in some, With some of our programs, we work with people to try and get a foothold by opening their own businesses. We work with newcomers, uh, particularly in the healthcare sector, whose mm. credentials aren't recognized. And we know uh, because of the pandemic that uh, there's a huge shortage there, but at the same time, we have a lot of immigrants that were trained overseas whose credentials aren't recognized here, and they could be lending a lot of support to that effort that would benefit us all. And so working with them, providing loans so that they can get back into their professions and, and provide much needed services in Manitoba. So that just gives you an idea <laughs> of some of the work that we're doing and some of what we've seen. So much great work. Uh, there's a lot to a lot of directions we could go there. I want to I want to talk I want to talk about every, almost everything you just talked about there, including um, just helping people navigate the systems. And I was sort of hoping that the pandemic would shine a light on a lot of our systemic um, issues that we have to work through as a as a uh, as a culture and as a society and as a city and as a country and as a world. Um, how has the pandemic affected how you think um, the average Winnipegger relates to systems? And do you think that there's enough of a appetite for systems change that something is actually going to be different in the recovery period? Or do you like, ha have we realized what the problems are and, and, and now we can focus on them? Or do you like, how optimistic are you that some systems changes in our future? Yeah, I think there's grounds for optimism, but there's also grounds for pessimism as well. So both things are existing alongside. So I think certain things became really clear, uh, just how fragile global supply chains are mm -hmm. um, and the importance of having a very strong and healthy uh, local economy. And so I think a lot of people saw just how critical it was to support locally owned 
businesses. Um, so that so that's great. Um, I think because we were in such a precarious situation, I think it built more of a sense of empathy uh, for other people as they face hardships and just recognizing that there's so many things beyond our control mm. that can really limit our opportunities and our choices. Um, and so I think the pandemic taught us that. And so there's the potential for people to really see that um, how other people might be boxed in by systemic factors beyond their control and be less judgmental in terms of um, the kinds of, of, of struggles and economic circumstances that people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we saw like a groundswell of support for things like the Black Lives Movement, uh, which is amazing. And so I think, and, and, and uh, national survey data is showing that there is more awareness of, of systemic racism and of some of these systemic and structural issues so that's all become part of our language and people are recognizing that at the same time i think one of the responses when people are feeling in a really uh unstable and precarious situation particularly financially is a shift towards just focusing on yourself and your immediate family mm -hmm. and so there is this um bent towards sort of more of uh, individualistic responses and so at the same time we've seen a rise in um, more overt racism we've seen a rise in and and um, I think it's always been there in terms of white supremacist movements but I think they've been emboldened for a whole variety of reasons but I think it's much more visible and um, and much more open than it used to be yeah. and so I, I think that's that also poses a, a challenge um, and, and I also think the other thing that makes it much more challenging to deal with um, systemic issues is in order to do that, we have to have strong democratic institutions uh, to address that. And so if people start losing faith in those mm -hmm. systems, then our mechanisms for addressing um, some of the more structural and systemic issues are eroded. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's also a trend right now uh, where there is less and less faith in a range of institutions from the media to, to government. And so that also poses uh, a challenge around how do we uh, come together as a society and come up with solutions uh, that will have a much broader impact than just um, individually based charity. Very well said. Could not agree more. Yeah. Um, it seems as though we're in this sort of weird spot where everyone I talk to is exhausted. Everyone mm -hmm. is over, you know, I mean, mostly I'm talking to people in the philanthropic sector or in, you mm -hmm. know, but it really does seem like there is a, uh, there's a general sense of everyone's stretched everyone's working their butts off, but we're still not make, seeing the needle move in the right direction. So just to the average, what can, what can the average person do to help out with the encampment situation and, and with people struggling and with the widening um, gap when it comes to financial barriers and all this stuff, like what can the average person do who, and I'm sure the average person too is also tired and overworked and, you know, underpaid and all that stuff. So how do we, how do we kind of all paddle the boat in the same direction yeah. and, and try try to get towards some sort of uh, out of out of a uh, improvement for for these situations that I think are worsening by the uh, by the day. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've tried to remind myself of throughout this whole pandemic. Um, and yeah, and I think you're right, like feeling exhausted, <laughs> feeling really stretched and thinking I have nothing left to give. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, I think it's been really helpful to take a step back and and really 
recognize all of the privilege that that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was able to order in groceries. And so then thinking about, well, then that means that there's people that are out there delivering groceries who are at risk. Um, and so um, I think taking that perspective of really, um, and I, I guess we just had Thanksgiving of really sort of counting our blessings and and recognizing the privilege can create more sort of psychological space mm. for wanting to think about how we can be supportive of others. Um, so when I think about it getting like super cold outside and dreading winter, I'm thinking, well, you know, I have a roof over my head. <laughs> There's people that don't. And so I think, I think I would say the first thing which all of us can do is to, to lead with kindness. And so, you know, when grocery shopping and just recognizing uh, the people at my local grocery store who've been there throughout the whole pandemic, there's a convenience store across the street, just engaging in conversation and um, and expressing gratitude in different ways by maybe commenting and saying something nice about about what they're doing um, and then taking that same attitude to people that are on the street and I know that people have uh, very different philosophies um, in terms of um, making a direct contribution but I think that's always appreciated mm. uh, but what is probably even more appreciated is acknowledging our common humanity and so looking someone right in the eye smiling at them saying hi um, being willing to engage in a conversation even though their circumstances are, are very different than ours I think is is really important. Um, And then I think there is no shortage of organizations and programs that are doing really amazing work um, to try and address the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, there's different ways of supporting organizations. So there's obviously material support, there's donations, there's volunteering, there's being on the board. So, So that's really helpful. And then we have civic elections coming up right now. And Uh, And we're in a situation where the candidates all recognize that the three top issues are poverty, people's sense of safety, um, and the issue of people that are unsheltered or don't have um, a house. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, so they are ready and willing to speak to those issues. So I would say in addition to making sure that you understand the different platforms, um and and where different candidates stand on the issues um and voting accordingly um i think this is also a great opportunity to engage and to really um let people know what you care about and engage a conversation so i signed up to the make poverty history campaign and they have this great like email that you can just and it's online so if you go to make poverty history you can send an email to all of the candidates running for everything in the city like so councillors and the mayoral candidates and you can um and they have some suggested wording but you can adjust it in terms of what you care about and i have never received so many responses to an email that i've sent out so Mm -hmm. i've been in correspondence with quite a few candidates around um, how they are planning on on addressing those three issues. Very cool. And so I would say, yeah, I'd say all of those things. And then I'd say the last thing, which I think we learned 
uh, during the pandemic as well is to really think about how we spend our money. So mm -hmm. spend it locally. Um, when we're not spending it locally, uh, think about the ethics behind the money that you're um, that you're uh, spending. And so we came through a global pandemic. We realized that we're connected to these global supply chains. There's workers, there's the environment. Um, there's all sorts of um, potential exploitation that is embedded in uh, how we spend our money, where we invest our RSPs. And so being really conscious of that and, and uh, putting an ethical lens on, on how we spend money. Yes. Uh, again, a beautiful, amazing answer. So, so, so well said. I love what you said about acknowledging our common humanity, because I think especially with the, the sort of divergence of um, technology and, you, you know, you're, it's all Zoom chats, you only see your family and very few other people. And now that we're sort of reintegrating ourselves back into society, it's an important thing to remember that we're all in this together and we're all we're all connected in that way. I, I want to do I do want to dig into what, what you were talking about at the end there, sort of consumer awareness and just being aware of our finances, because I think for a very long time, people were just kind of when it, whether or not it was investments or whatever, it was just like, well, as long as the numbers go up, I don't care where what, what it's coming from, as long as my bank account keeps going up and up and up. Um so just from the perspective of, of global economies and in the end low and shopping local and all that stuff, how important do you think it is for, for people to become a little bit more educated about local economies, about where we're spending our money, about how you're saving and, and where that's all going in an ethical and sustainable and um, community minded way? Yeah, I, I, I continue to struggle with this because we are in a type of an economic system that in some ways is amazing. Like we have all of these different goods and services at our fingertips, and it is really efficient in producing those as long as you have the ability to pay. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a hidden cost, which at this point is not so hidden, uh, to having things organized in that way. Um, so the costs are to our local economies. And so we have fewer and fewer sort of locally based enterprises, those mom and shop, mm -hmm. mom and pop shops. And so as an organization that works with entrepreneurs who want to establish businesses, there's very, uh, there's limited niches in which local businesses can thrive because of the incredible sort of purchasing power um, that the larger scale sort of big box outlets have mm -hmm. and the level of vertical integration they have and the amount of control they have over supply chains really uh, freezes out um, smaller scale stores. And so mm. it's not a fair uh, playing field. So that's one piece. And then we recognize the vulnerability to just relying on a very limited uh, number of, um, of different outlets um, and, and how vulnerable those supply chains could be. Uh, during the pandemic so so that that's one piece um, is that it really erodes what how healthy our local economies are mm -hmm. uh, the other piece is there is uh, implicit imperative uh, because our system is very much driven by the idea of maximizing profits to both uh, try and produce goods and services at the lowest possible cost which means suppressing wages right. which means um, even for people that might be working sort of full-time multiple jobs that they might be in a situation where they're essentially living in poverty. Uh, that was definitely the case overseas, but it's becoming increasingly true even in a North American context. 
So that that's a huge challenge. But there's also hyper exploitation of our environment. And again, the results of that were very much hidden and we weren't as aware of it, although it was much more visible in um, in uh, southern countries where a lot of the raw materials and so mm -hmm. on are are extracted from. And so it was visible in terms of environmental degradation, as well as things like child labor, which we're very concerned about. But now uh, we are seeing um, because of uh, environmental collapse happening in many different areas, the shift in weather patterns, uh, we are now seeing the impacts of, um, of what this globalized economy is doing and what uh, sort of unfettered growth without any constraints around uh, the environment, what the impacts of that are. And so there is a real imperative to look at that and to try and figure out how do we create more sustainable enterprises and systems for getting what it is that we need in order to live healthy lives. Um, and so I, I don't have all of the answers. But <laughs> well, I nobody do, does for sure. But, yeah. yeah, but I do know that the current um, construction of the way in which um, businesses operate is not sustainable. And we do have to look at different models like worker-owned cooperatives or social enterprises that are more rooted in the local economy and that embedded in their structure is more concern about a broader set of outcomes than just maximizing profit. Well said. I could not agree more. Could not agree more. Um, why? Why do you do this work? How? Where? Where does? Where does your motivation come from to to get up every morning and 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 fight the good fight? Um, it's because, in some ways, I was really fortunate uh, in coming out of a very unfortunate situation. Um, so I was born in Central Africa, and at a very young age, uh, we became refugees. Mm. which meant that we were unable to uh, live in our home country. It was unsafe for my parents. Uh, they would have been killed. Uh, and so we lived a very precarious existence for a number of years. And that experience and also what I witnessed in living in India and in Kenya um, really has shaped the way that I think about things because I recognize that regardless of my personal attributes, regardless of how hard I work, there were multiple uh, future trajectories available to me and most mm -hmm. of them were really quite difficult um, and would have meant living in sort of abject poverty with very few choices available to me. And so when I go out on the streets of Winnipeg and I see people in encampments, I'm thinking, yeah, that could have totally been my family. Um, there really is no difference. And so knowing that and knowing the extent to which we were helped, both at an individual level with people that reached out to our family, but also with people that worked for broader systemic change. So things mm -hmm. like having a refugee convention in place <laughs> uh, that was put in place in the 60s um, that um, created protection for refugees and made it less likely that they would get returned to their forcibly returned to their country of origin. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Or the program that allows uh, institutions in Canada, uh, like churches or groups of five, to sponsor refugees. So that's how our family ended up in Canada. And so 
those were all systemic solutions that people advocated and fought for. And so now that I am in this, what I consider to be a really privileged position, I feel like that, that I need to do that as well. Like I need to be part of both creating opportunities for people at an individual level to reach their fullest potential, but also to try and address some of the broader systemic issues uh, to, so that people aren't trapped in the way that my family would have been. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I thought it was very, I mean, not funny, but funny that you're like, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And then you talked about a very difficult life, you know, like yeah. the fact that you can frame that as for as fortunate is is a, a, a testament to your character, I think. But let's let's talk a little bit about the. I, I feel like this podcast often the converse the bootstrap conversation comes up, and people think that they worked their asses off for everything they've got. Nobody helped them. Nobody helped me. I did it all myself. Blah 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 blah. And I'm hoping that people like even I'm the most privileged person I've maybe ever met. I had, you know, every, everything was handed to me and I'm so grateful. And so I have to acknowledge it, obviously. And I see people who have the exact same upbringing as me, yet they think they worked for it all. They got, they were given no help and that, that everyone else shouldn't be given help either. And it, and I, I'm, I'm struggling with how to have conversations within that context because it seems like a very hard shell to break down when someone believes that they um weren't given help or they they can't see the help that they were given so i just need maybe i would like to tap into your wisdom a little bit of like how i can have these conversations with people who don't seem to acknowledge the help that they've been given when everyone in every position at all levels of society have been given a good, like a tremendous amount of help to get where they are, whether it's through teachers or parents or friends or bosses or mentors or anything. So how, how do you have those conversations with people who don't seem to um, acknowledge their, the help that they've been given? Um, what's a way that we can find some common ground and, and, and get through to that um, mindset a little bit? Yeah, no, that that's certainly a challenging one. And it does require a bit of a paradigm shift for people to move from the idea that we live in a meritocracy and that everybody starts off kind of like it's this like fair race. And, you know, if you end up ahead, that's because. Um, yeah. And so it's not something that is going to shift from one conversation. So I would take the pressure off yourself. <laughs> like, there's no magic words that you're going to tell people <laughs> uh, that's going to, so it's going to be accumulation of things. So I've had conversations with people where like a decade later, they're like, oh yeah. So remember that conversation we had 10 years ago. <laughs> and finally, like other experiences that they've had, they've thought about it and they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, like I can totally see your point. Uh, and often it takes um, something experiential for people to shift off of that mm. uh, way of thinking. And so I know at one point United Way had a poverty simulation. So having those kinds of, or organizing those kinds of experiences for people, I've done a game with folks called Star Power, where you essentially, it's a trading game, but you decide at the beginning who's going to start off with better chips to trade. Uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then they trade and you congratulate the people that are doing really well and you're like kind of 
mean and dismissive to people who didn't do so well in the trades. Uh, and then as the game progresses to different rounds, you allow the people who are doing really well to start making the rules of how the game is going to operate. And so mm -hmm. they start making rules like, oh, we can only trade. And they have like little, um, we give them. <laughs> so the people that do the best get like circles or, and so they can visibly see who's who. And so they make rules like, oh, we can only trade with other people that are circles. Or if we uh, decide that we want to trade with someone and we want their chips, they have to give it to us, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and so they create all of these. And then when you debrief with folks, they're like, huh. And then they see the parallels to the world that we live in. Uh, but it takes that kind of experience for there to be, I think, a little bit of a shift and a challenge in thinking and accumulation of different experiences. So I would say continue having the conversations, use yourself as an example, acknowledge your own privilege, which is what I try to do uh, in terms of not saying oh well you know the reason why I was able to go to university is because I was so smart and I worked so hard yeah I did work hard like I'm not going to take that away from myself but I also had two parents that had post-secondary and that statistically is mm -hmm. a big predictor about whether or not you go to university and for someone that doesn't have that example that's really really challenging and so to kind of personalize it as opposed to pointing out their privilege pointing out your privilege I think can be disarming so yeah but I don't think there's any magic way of, of doing this just planting seeds and then 10 years <clears throat> 10 years from now the, yeah. the plants will grow no that's very very uh good good advice and, and uh and wise words uh, again what do you what do you think the biggest <clears throat> focus uh the biggest issue that winnipeg needs to focus on in the next five to ten years is going to be uh coming into the recovery period of the post-pandemic Wow. Um, I would say addressing the root causes of poverty. Root causes is so important. Yeah, we have yeah. like I, I love all the organizations that we grant to, but a lot of them seem like they're more band-aid fixes for things that if we, we need to go up the river and find out who's polluting. Like we're we're kind of down river and just sort of shoveling the sludge out of the river, whereas we we need to go up the river and see what's who's dumping it in and what's causing this all. But so how do how do we kind of what what's the what's the process of of going up river and figuring out the root causes like and is it just to come down to funding more people who are claiming to uh, um focus on the root causes or like what's the what does the process look like yeah so like i do think we need both uh because there are mm, people well, yeah. that are still like needing that those band-aid and immediate solutions so i, I think that's really important um I would say um, that there is a lot of information out there and a lot that has been written and there's a lot of proven solutions. Um, so I think one of my challenges to funders is going to be around um, really thinking about how they fund organizations and this whole sort of project based, like trying to find like project based funding and trying to find sort of the silver bullet that's going to address. Like it's a whole sort of multiplicity of things that need to be done and they need to be done in tandem. And there does need to be a stable funding base for organizations to be able to do that work and to really encourage cross-sectoral collaboration. Um, so that we Sorry, can what, word that, what kind of cross, cross sectoral collaboration. Oh, sectoral. Okay. So, yeah, so yeah. that it's not just yes. us as a nonprofit that's working on this. It's seed as a nonprofit uh, working alongside academics, working alongside financial institutions, uh, working alongside government entities to try and mm. figure out uh, solutions and kind of all pull in the same direction. And so to 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 really 
look at ways to support those kinds of uh, collaborative initiatives um, is really important and recognizing mm -hmm. the complexity of the issue as opposed to trying to fund that single project that's going to solve everything because that's a unicorn like that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that would be one piece. Uh, the other piece is also, which, which I think is a bit challenging for all of us, but to really think, so this is for funders, this is for government, this is for nonprofits, uh, to really think about how do we ensure that the people that are most directly impacted, that we are working, who are most directly impacted by the issues that we're working on, how do we make sure that they're at the table, that they're at the center of designing programs and projects, that we hear their voices then we're, when we're talking about trying to come up with systemic solutions. Listening. Um, and listening. so yeah. listening, uh, also really thinking about, well, how do we fund Indigenous-led organizations or organizations that are led by people from the African community? Uh, how do we build that capacity Um uh, yeah, and so really uh, spending uh, a lot of attention doing that and then internally within our organizations, how do we make sure that at every level of the organization, uh, from frontline to the management level and on our board, that our organizations are representative of the communities that we serve and that we create a safe environment, uh, because those solutions also need to come from people that have the direct lived experience as opposed to having people that are really, really well-meaning that are thinking, oh yeah, this is how it works and this mm -hmm. is what we're going to do and this is going to work, right? Um, yeah, so I would say that that all of those things need to be done. I find myself saying the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions a lot lately. <laughs> yeah. like just realizing people might mean well, but that doesn't mean that it's going to go well. You know, yeah. and uh, yeah. you see so many instances of that where everyone thinks that they're doing good yeah. and it ends up going poorly. So, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting dichotomy for sure. Yeah. And, and a few years ago, we got funding for a public policy position. It was just for a partial public policy uh, position, which was great. That funding ran out. We've managed to sustain a bit of that position. But there's very little out there uh, in terms of providing sustained support for that kind of sort of systemic mm -hmm. work, uh, which is focused on identifying the, the root causes and try to work at a systems level to address the barriers that people experience as opposed to always focusing on the individual and trying to fix the individual to try mm -hmm. and navigate their way through a broken system. Right. Let's try and uh, figure out ways to fix the system but that work is chronically under-resourced um, and uh, yeah so there needs to be long-term sustained funding for that kind of work yeah I don't I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about systems reform and I think I joked last time we spoke that if I was running for mayor my things would be system <laughs> reform and infrastructure that's it that's all I would focus on <laughs> but, yeah uh, you know that's for maybe 20 years from now um yeah. So I want to briefly talk about your work with the Winnipeg Foundation as well. You're on the grants commit on one of the grants commit or what what's your official role and just maybe give me a little background. Yeah, I'm I'm one of the members of the community uh, grants committee. Awesome. Yeah, so just reviewing applications for community grants and um, providing some input into the decisions. How's that? Um, around choices how's that experience been for you it's been really eye-opening because it's really interesting to see things from the other perspective because I've always been on the other side of mm -hmm. writing the grant application uh 
yeah, so it's been a real education. And uh, yeah, and I think I'm cautiously optimistic that there's openness to some of my ideas around some of the direction that the Winnipeg Foundation says that it wants to move in mm-hmm. around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we shall see what happens. Yeah, I know that there's a sort of big big uh, policy conversations happening and we're going, it seems like we're going in the right direction. So I'm, I've never been as optimistic as I am right now to be a part of the foundation. So, and I mean, it's good to hear the the strength of having people like you on, on those boards and, and helping out is, uh, is, is a testament to the direct, the right direction that we're going in. So I often feel like a huge troublemaker and I'm like should I have actually said that I don't know that they want to hear that but the, the, the trouble the quote-unquote troublemakers are always my favorite kinds of people yeah. so I'm uh, I love it keep 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 doing it in my opinion mm-hmm. uh so Louise at the end of our time together we do a segment called just because it's a uh, seven questions about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your life are you okay to go through those with us sure all right question one what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about I think probably it was when I was in India and uh, this is when we were refugees and Mm -hmm. seeing families having put together these ramshackle structures to live in on the sides of the road. Mm. Um, Yeah, in the ditches beside the road and just, yeah, just having my heart go out to them and just thinking, oh my, like that's so awful. Yeah, no kidding. Um, So question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your cause? Hmm. I think like that's such a great question. I think it would be around democratic reform so Mm -hmm. that... Uh, and this is at all the different levels. So that's both in how every single institution and organization functions. So everything from nonprofit organizations to businesses to our political system so that um, there were healthy ways for people to actually have a voice on the different within the systems that impact their lives. Mm, yeah, I agree. I find it, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I find it odd that we have so many systems and so many things built, you know, maybe let's say a hundred years ago, but like the internet was invented, you know, and that we have so many different things that came up and yet we're still governing ourselves by the rules of 19, whatever, 60, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it seems as though we should have more of an updated and and modern uh, approach to the democratic process, but it seems like for some reason we're stuck in the past on, on that thing. So yeah, I love that answer. I think it's, uh, yeah. It, and the past wasn't fair. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, we could get into that, but, uh, for, I know her, got, yeah. for <laughs> authentically time. democratic. So right. yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. Well said, uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest stigma about your cause? Um, I would say that it touches on what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we are talking about addressing poverty, um, I think there is a tendency to blame people for the situation that they're in. And implicit in that is the idea that, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you live in a meritocracy. Um, so when people find themselves in a situation where uh, they might um, be unsheltered uh, or they might not be have enough food for their kids. There's a tendency to blame them. 
yeah. as opposed to recognizing the, the systems yeah. behind it. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally, that you can share with us? One of, yeah, your, one, well, one of your wins. Yeah, well, I'm excited about this. And Winnipeg Foundation is actually who made it happen. Uh, we were recognizing that there had been a collapse of support for refugee claimants. So these are mm -hmm. people that arrive in Canada um, and they need to make a refugee claim and establish that they are at risk of persecution and that Canada should allow them to stay and offer safety um, and refuge here. Uh, but there are administrative processes that they need to go through. And uh, often because of language barriers, technological barriers, and just very tight, tight timelines, mm -hmm. and also very tight legal definitions about what a refugee is, uh, they need support, uh, paralegal support to help them with that. Uh, and so that support has really eroded. Uh, and there's lots of people falling between the cracks, and it's a matter of life and death. Uh, and so the Winnipeg Foundation has provided some funding to a coalition of community organizations that I'm part of uh, to uh, build community capacity to, to work with refugee claimants. So we just had our first uh, steering committee meeting. Nice. We hired a project coordinator. And there's also the potential of getting some additional funding from other sources because the dream is to eventually set up a um a, a clinic uh, for across a, for a range of immig immig immigrant issues, mm -hmm. um, and to also provide public legal education, and to also do uh, uh, education with community leaders so that they can be more effective sort of peer advocates and more mm -hmm. effective advocates of, in, in terms of more systemic work. And so Beautiful. super, yeah. So the Winnipeg Foundation got the ball rolling on that, nice. and hopefully it'll lead to a multi-year project. I think about that all the time. Like I personally hate navigating any sort of government, you know, website or phone call or being on hold or filling out forms. And I'm, you know, a, I, I, this is the system that was, I was brought up in. I speak the language. I have all the, all the privileges of that. It should be fine. And I still hate it. So I can't even imagine people who are going through the trauma of being a refugee and not speaking the language as they're for, you know, it, it boggles my mind that, and then my heart yeah. goes out to people who have to navigate that stuff because it's, it's hell, even for those who it's supposed to be, you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what's cool about the project is the impetus from the project came from someone like someone that I have huge respect for like he was a a champion for human rights in his country ended up mm. being thrown in jail tortured multiple times uh, mm. yeah I think he spent time in like 11 different prisons nice. um, but continues to be a champion and so he is one of the people that helps refugee claimants and he's like he came to me and he's like this is falling apart mm. like what are we gonna do like there's so many people coming to me like the uh, their ability to get these supports isn't there um, yeah, and so uh, one of the leads on this project is a former refugee claimant. So it's all like immigrants that are pulling this together and it's uh, going to be housed in healthy Muslim families. But there's a whole network of organizations around this project that are willing to support it. And most of them are immigrant led. So I'm very excited. Powerful. I love it. Yay. <laughs> uh, question five. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Oh, oh. Um, I would say there's lots, but one that resonates for me that I still haven't fully learned that I need to learn and keep relearning, um, which um, involves listening carefully to people. Mm -hmm. And I 
think it might have been Maud Barlow that gave me this advice, if I remember correctly, but, but I might be wrong about that. But it was, you need to, in a sense, give people the benefit of the doubt and assume good intentions on the part of people that you disagree with. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think that's really helpful. Such a rare thing in today's day and age, mm -hmm. in the modern social media age of... No, it was Judy Rebick. It wasn't Maude Barlow. It was Judy Rebick that gave me that advice. Yeah, and oh, this was like 30 years ago, and I keep having to learn it every year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, question six, staying on the advice train, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could go back in time and, and talk to her? Hmm. Um, that there's going to be some really challenging times um, and to continue to be kind to myself. Mm. love it beautiful uh and question seven the final question what do you louise want to be remembered for um have you given that I much want, thought yeah no i i have um and i want to be remembered as having had a positive impact on building the skills knowledge and capacities of other people beautiful well said every answer was so thoughtful and you know crammed with wisdom thank you very much for sharing it with me i feel very blessed and honored that you know you you gave me your time again so thank you so much thanks for being a part of vital science thanks for being on the grant or the community grants committee uh, thank you for your work with SEED. Thank you for your work as a uh, community human rights advocate. And uh, just thank you for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're much, much too kind. But uh, but yeah, it was a pleasure. Have a really great afternoon. Thanks, Louise. Okay, bye. Thank you again to Louise and Bandamwe for the wonderful conversation. Um, really inspiring and empowering and I, I said it a few times, but very wise words from Louise. Uh, I, I feel honored that I got to listen and learn and uh, spend some time with her. And yeah, if you want to learn more about Seed Winnipeg, you can visit seedwinnipeg.ca. That's S-E-E-D winnipeg.ca. All one word. And thank you so much for listening and for sticking around to this little end, up, end of the podcast wrap up that I do every week. It's uh, much appreciated. I know you, know you probably got stuff to do, so thanks for hanging out. The Cause and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about TWF, you can visit us online at wpgfdn.org or by searching at WPGFDN on all social media platforms. Thanks again to Trenton Burton for the music on the podcast. Thank you again for listening. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off. We'll see you next week. And remember, it's never too late to be what you might have been. Bye-bye. <laughs>